Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday that we can come and set ourselves under your means of grace that you might work in our lives and conform us to the image of Christ. We pray for wisdom and understanding that we can dig into the scriptures and know what you have said, believe what you have said, and obey what you have said, that we might live lives that would bring honor to you. Thank you for the grace you've shown us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. Now, we were on verse 1. Last time we got into a discussion about means of grace. This week I was thinking about that some more. And Kathy had a really good question. All right, she said this. She asked this. What she said? How, what does that have to do with the Holy Spirit coming to us? Okay, what is means of grace? What's the relationship between means of grace and the Holy Spirit? Isn't the isn't it the Holy Spirit who comes and sanctifies us? And the answer is yes, it is the Holy Spirit who comes to sanctify us. But the Holy Spirit comes to us through God's through the Word, through the means. So grace comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we need to know is how the Holy Spirit comes to us because we don't have some sort of an antenna that can go, this is the Holy Spirit, this is some other spirit. We don't have that. We can't tell the difference. And so these people that are going into neo-monasticism think that if they do certain practices, the Holy Spirit's coming to them, and what makes them think it is the Holy Spirit is a feeling. But they don't know that it is. But if we come, on, according to the terms of the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. And that was what uh, Luther said over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit comes through the words. The Word. Yeah, you're not saying, or we're not saying that spirits don't give us impressions. Right now, today, tomorrow, we believe that spirits give us impressions. And if people chase spirits and try to get close to spirits, they can even feel spirits and get more impressions. And they may feel close to God. But, be, but they're but, not. You know, what we know that the Holy Spirit comes through the Word, and that's where we're supposed to get our truth is from the, the Word when, it, when yeah, it's spoken. Right. So if I, have, um, I have on my, in my Libranix. Libranix is the computer system under which the Lagos works. And I also have on that the complete works of Luther. And as you read Luther, Luther was absolutely adamant that these enthusiasts who claimed they had a direct impression of the Spirit, and that's where they got their information, he was just death on that. He, he thought that was the worst thing you could possibly do. And you go to the Word, and that's how the Holy Spirit comes to you. Do you have a, like a title or, or something of that Luther work? Oh, boy. Yeah, Against the Heavenly Prophets is one of them. Yeah, Against the Heavenly Prophets. And otherwise, if I just go in there and search for enthusiasts, you get so many hits you don't know which one to read first uh, on, on the, system, the logo system. Anyhow... We are in 2 Corinthians 12, 2. Now, this is, the reason I brought that back up is pertinent to today's lesson. Because Paul actually had a legitimate experience where he was caught up in the paradise. And 
what he saw and heard, it was illegal to tell about. And the only reason he even bothered mentioning he had, yes? It's a big distinction between what Paul experienced and what others have tried to experience is that they are trying, the others are trying. Paul it just happened. God did it. Yeah, God did it. And the other difference is he did, he, it was illegal for him to tell about it, and everybody nowadays writes a book. <laughs> All right. And I'm going to talk about today why, it's, why this cannot be how we receive information about God, His nature, about heaven, and about unseen spiritual things. Why we, it just can't work. All right, let's go to our verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up into the third heaven. Now, we, we introduced this last week, and then we got into our discussion. And every modern scholar believes this is Paul, and it's obviously Paul because Paul got a thorn in the flesh because of this. All right? So he's why so then why is he saying this in a third person? In order to he's in the middle of his fool speech, he doesn't even believe it's pertinent to be talking about these things, and he's been compelled to talk about them because the false apostles, they're called uh, super apostles in chapter eleven, are claiming they had superior visions and therefore uh the, the Corinthians are listening to these people and these people, according to 2 Corinthians 11, 4, had a different gospel, a different spirit, and a different Jesus. But they were, they were finding followers in Corinth from amongst the Christians in the church. So in order to um, refute these guys, Paul is, is somewhat reluctantly mentioning that he's had experiences probably better than theirs, but he won't even say exactly what it was as far as any details, and he considers himself a fool to even talk about it. But he also uses this to introduce his strength and weakness motif. The thorn in the flesh was his weakness, and he would rather boast in his weakness. His weakness does him more good than his vision. All right, now, so the man is actually Paul himself, using the third person in order to de-emphasize any sort of bragging or self-aggrandizement or whatever you might be seen to do. Garland says this. It means that he had spent months with them and never mentioned this incident once. As far as he's concerned, his rapturous visions have nothing to do with their becoming Christians. Therefore, visions have nothing to do with authenticating an apostle. This particular vision also resulted in a thorn in the flesh, that seems to have provoked some disparagement of Paul. He notifies them that the thorn in the flesh, the clearest evidence of his weakness, was the outcome of a spectacular vision, his entrance into paradise. He, he repeats twice that he doesn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. That's what he said here. Whether in the body, I don't know. Whether out, I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Caught up here is the same word for the rapture, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And it is aorist active participle. That means it happened at a point of time. And passive means it happened to Paul. So he did not seek this experience. He did nothing to initiate this experience. It was something that happened to him. It's not recounted anywhere in Acts, as I said last week. Probably happened 
about 44, 42 to 44 A.D., but it's not mentioned in Acts. And he never said anything about it anywhere else other than right here in this particular passage. So notice, let's read verses 3 and 4, And I know how such a man, whether in body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, there's another issue. Is the third heaven the same as paradise? Verse 2, third heaven. Verse 4, paradise. Is the two ways of saying the same thing. The consensus is yes, it is. It's not two experiences, but one. And so the third heaven would be the same as paradise. And it would be the dwelling place of God. Okay, in Jewish uh, discussions, there are, I think I mentioned this before, they talk about the third heaven being the dwelling place of God. So, Paul had some extraordinary experience. And the word, by the way, caught up to the third heaven, there's a word in the Greek, to, is actually a word that would indicate a limit as far as one can go. Uh, the, the word in the Greek here is used in Acts 1.8 when it says as far as the outermost parts of the world. So it was like setting an outer limit. So this third heaven would be the limit because there's no further to go. So he is caught up into the furthest place where you could go, the very dwelling place of God. Now where is this? Well, we can't we're stuck with spatial terms because of our language limitations, okay? Our human language. It isn't necessarily an up or a down or a left or a right or an east or a west, okay? Because that's just how we have to talk because we're in a, a huge universe, in a vast universe, and where we're standing any moment, you could be pointing to a different direction depending on where the earth is, Right? So the, the dwelling place of God is in another dimension that isn't defined by our understanding of geometry or, or, or locations. Does that make sense? But the terminology is always the up, caught up to God. And for Sheol, you go down <laughs> into Sheol, like uh, Korah knows and, and company. That's the terminology. Let me see. Is there anything else to say about this? Let's go down to verse 4. 3 is a repetition. Uh, I did have a quote I wanted to do here. The repetition, according to Garland, of the same bird caught up, harpazo, in 12.4, for being taken to the third heaven into paradise, suggests that Paul refers to a single experience. A three-heaven schema is the most well-established view in Jewish writings, and a third heaven would therefore be recognized as the highest. Thrall points out that Paul's use of the two terms can be explained by Semitic synthetic parallelism. The second time, he just uses a different word, so they're synonymous. Caught up in the paradise, paradise. In contrast to the false teachers, what he saw in paradise, he heard inexpressible or unutterable words, which is man is not permitted to speak. From the Greek, it's clear that it said that this is not lawful. It's illegal to talk about this. It's illegal. 
You don't talk about it because you're not allowed to. And another citation from Garland, and I'm going to talk about what happens nowadays. Garland says this, Paul confides very little about what happened. We learn only that he was caught up into the third heaven, paradise, how he, how he does not know, and what he heard he cannot divulge. Paul's account of his journey to heaven differs from the tours of heaven and hell recorded by other apocalyptic and mystical writers of the age. Now, I wrote an article, I don't know how many years ago, called Visiting Heaven and Hell. I don't know if you ever read that article. I wrote it, I don't know, maybe it was even in the 90s. And I was, I was talking about this literature where people are writing books about going to heaven and hell. Okay, and I wrote that in the 90s, and I wrote, and I reviewed, like, I think three books. I reviewed, there's a lady named Baxter, who had gone to hell. Then there was Jesse Duplantis, who went to heaven, and Kenneth Hagin, that went to heaven. Okay. Well, then after, after, no, I wrote that, you know, I just reviewed three books for people who went to heaven and hell and said that they weren't credible. They're, they're, for one thing, the, there's details that we know are wrong. Well, after I wrote that, that was how many years ago, there's been three or four more books published of people that go to heaven and hell. Okay? And it's interesting that people won't believe that, the, that heaven or hell are real from reading the Bible, but they'll believe it if some guy says he went there. All right? Now, remember the story in Luke 16 where... Is a story about the rich man and Lazarus. And, the, and the, the Lazarus is laying there in the rich man's doorstep and the dogs are licking him, which would be really bad if you're Jewish. Okay? Dog, there, you will never find a positive reference about a dog in the Bible. Dogs are nasty, unclean things that are more like jackals as far as the Jews are concerned. So when you die, if the dog licks up your blood like Jezebel, it's really bad. <laughs> okay? It's a disgraceful way to be. Okay, and so he's disgraced by being licked by dogs. And they both die. One goes to Abraham's bosom, and the other one goes to Hades. Hades. Hades, it says. And he's tormented. All right? And then he says, well, there's a chasm, and he can't, there's there's no way across it. And he said, well, at least let me warn my brothers about this place. Because... Uh, somebody needs to warn them. They don't know that they're going to come here. And Jesus said this, they have Moses and the prophets. If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if a man comes back from the dead. Now, of course, it's predicting the unbelief that it will ensue after Jesus' resurrection. And Lazarus coming back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was a Lazarus that was raised, and they tried to kill him again. That's how, how bad unbelief is. But so they're not, it, it, the idea that if somebody comes and says, okay, I went to heaven. There was, there was another one recently, some guy that sold, I don't know how many books, because he said he went to heaven. And why, why does anybody listen to this? Okay, now I'm going to show you that visions of heaven and hell or any kind of visions cannot be used to validate anyone's ministry. There was a reason why Paul, who had a legitimate vision, would not tell what he saw and what he heard because it was illegal. How are ministries validated? How do you know you're talking to a true apostle? Well, the test 
was that they saw the resurrected Christ. In other words, they saw Christ bodily on earth. The test wasn't that they saw Christ in a vision in heaven, but they saw him bodily on earth. Because anybody can say they had a vision. There's no limit. Anybody. Okay, I'm going to start a new religion. I went to heaven. I talked to Jesus, and he told me stuff that's not in the Bible, and so come to my seminar. Now, what a science fiction writer can do this, right? How can you prove whether they actually had a vision of Jesus in heaven? Well, you can't. It's their private experience. Now, we know the ones I reviewed we know are false because every one of these guys, in fact, I've got a book here that I also reviewed, Every one of these guys talked to dead saints in heaven. By the way, you're not supposed to talk to the dead. Did you know that? It's called necromancy. But the interesting thing is every one of them um, talked to somebody in heaven, come back with a report that the Scripture wasn't trustworthy. Yes, Jesse Duplantis talked to David, and David said that you shouldn't believe all of his psalms because some of them he wrote when he was having a bad day. Okay, so don't believe, just believe the positive psalms, don't believe the lament ones. Now this is what King David told Jesse Duplantis in heaven. Yeah, I don't think that was the real David telling people not to believe the Bible. All right, now, here's a guy, this thing is still being sold after years. This one called The Final Quest. All right, I reviewed this book, and this is a new version of it, it's still coming out. They just keep publishing and publishing and publishing, it was originally from 96, and here, this guy went up and talked to the saints in heaven. His name is Rick Joyner. Now, what did, what did the saints in heaven tell Rick Joyner? Well, Paul was talking to him, and Paul was telling Rick Joyner that he's greater than Paul. Rick Joyner is. In fact, Rick Joyner is so great and so glorious that some angel had to give him a cloak of humility or nobody could look at him. All right. <laughs> that sounds humble, doesn't it? <laughs> so, any, anyhow, what did Paul tell Rick Joyner about the Scriptures? Yeah, he says, don't read my, what I wrote. It's not as good. You should just read the red letters. So Paul is discounting his own writings. How come every one of these guys goes to heaven and the saints up there tell them the Scriptures aren't reliable? Well, because this is in heaven. This is a demon playing a videotape in somebody's brain. It may be a real experience, but it's a deception. It's a delusion. All right, so I wrote a review of that. And then now there's somebody even now came out with a book who's actually an Orthodox Christian, but I still don't believe him. I don't believe anybody who said they went to heaven, and I don't believe they have a right to write about it. Paul said it's illegal. If it's illegal, it's illegal. If it's illegal for the apostle, it's illegal for some Baptist preacher. And and I'm willing to take a stand on that. It's illegal. You don't not know. You only know what the Bible says. Okay, now, why did Paul have this experience? Well, there's some discussion about that. Why would God give Paul an experience that required him later to have a thorn in the flesh because of it? We can only guess, because Paul doesn't say. But if you think of what we just studied in 2 Corinthians 11, can you imagine what he went through? I mean, remember the, the, the litany? Shipwrecked so many times, 
39 lashes so many times, beaten with rods so many times, hardship, deprivation, persecution, and on top of all that, the burden for the church, his, the, his concern for the church was so great that his uh, one theory is this, that he went, what he went through would have been unbearable, so this experience gave him a more concrete knowledge of what paradise is really like just to keep him going. And uh, that's just one idea. I can't think of a better one. But because he had that, he had to have a thorn in the flesh because otherwise he might be tempted to exalt himself. So that's about Paul's experience. Now, the reason why apostles have to be validated objectively and have seen the resurrected Christ is that the test of spirits has to be objective. All right? The test of spirits cannot be subjective. You can never know spirits based on your feelings or your impressions because Satan can show up as an angel of light. If a deceptive spirit wanted to appear as something, that deceptive spirit will appear in the form that you think probably would be God. Okay? If you have a feeling that's given to you by a deceptive spirit, it's a feeling of warm and fuzzy and lovey and all wonderful things. Okay, that's how it works. Having known people uh, converted from the occult, one guy testified that when he had familiar spirits that he had taken course to learn how to get, that those spirits always gave him good, positive, warm, wonderful experiences every time until he was converted. He, he went to a church and heard the gospel and all of a sudden, these spirits turned on him. They weren't, so, they weren't so friendly after all. Okay? And he found out their true nature when, when that happened. So what is the test of spirits? Well, turn with me to 1 John 4, 1 through 5. We're going to see how we can test a spirit or test an experience. We've been through this before, but it bears uh, the topic here, Paul's vision that he couldn't speak about, tells us why you can't test spirits based on experiences. It says in 1 John 4, starting with verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, we're supposed to test spirits. Now look at the next line. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Through whom are the spirits speaking? False prophets, right? Those are people, right? So the spirits are expressing themselves through persons who claim to be speaking for God. That's what it says right here, all right? They're, they're, the false prophets are in the world, so that's why you have to test spirits. So the spirits are talking through people. There's a spiritual source for the, for the teaching. By this you know the Spirit of God. How do you know that the Spirit of God? Okay, remember now a prophet is somebody who's claiming to speak for God. So somebody's speaking, somebody's preaching. How do you know they're from God? Here's what it says. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Now, remember, it isn't just like a, a shibboleth. A word that if you say it, it proves it's like a secret password. That's, that's from the Old Testament. There was a tribe that couldn't say that, so it was a test. 
And um, it isn't that somebody can't say Jesus came in the flesh. They can't say it. It's like they're, they're, they're tongue-tied. They can't say it. No, it, it's, it's not what it's saying here. To confess, homologia means to say the same thing. To confess is more than just utter words. To confess is to, under, under duress if necessary, under any circumstance, the person will confess the personal work of Christ. So the Holy Spirit, how do we know the Holy Spirit's at work? Because the person motivated by the Holy Spirit will always confess Christ. They confess Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Now, Jesus Christ coming in the flesh is John's shorthand way of describing the doctrine of the Incarnation. The doctrine of the Incarnation is the whole personal work of Christ, not just that he had a real body. So Jesus coming in the flesh means that, number one, he came from heaven to earth. Okay, he preexisted as God and with God. So he came into the, our world. Number two, he had a real, tangible, physical body. He was a man, fully human and fully God. Number three, Jesus came in the flesh, was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And to be that Lamb, he was sinless, without blemish, without any moral blemish. Number four, Jesus Christ came in the flesh also has to do with his work on the cross, that he died for sins. All of this is found in 1 John in various ways. Okay, the tangibility of Jesus. They saw him, they touched him, they felt him, they spoke to him. It's tangible, it's physical. It wasn't somebody's visionary journey to heaven. Merkaba mysticism, they call it in Jewish circles. Okay, so he died for sins, and he was raised bodily. Remember the tangibility? He was bodily raised, appeared to many witnesses, and bodily ascended into heaven. Okay, and when he comes again, he'll come in the same body that has the mark of Calvary that Thomas saw when he said, my Lord and my God. That's the tangibility. That's the Jesus, that's the Jesus that the Holy Spirit confesses. And so if you go and hear somebody preaching to a crowd and they confess Christ willingly and persistently, then you see a work of the Holy Spirit. If they do not confess Christ, it's not a work of the Holy Spirit. Some other spirit is inspiring them. And then there's a corollary that goes with it. Is the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Mm-hmm. So we know that it's the spirit of prophecy if he testifies Jesus. Yes. The testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. That's in Revelation somewhere. It's in Revelation. I know that. Uh, great. Just a question on Paul's authority was because he had seen Christ. Right. Is that then or at another... He, he saw Christ um, on the road to Damascus, and, and I think that he appeared to him again uh, later when he got the, the teaching of the New Testament. So he, so he saw, he, remember when he said, am I not a, I think it's 1 Corinthians 9, am I not an apostle, have I not seen the resurrected Christ? And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I was the one like one born out of time. So, he, so Christ tangibly, okay, came and appeared to Paul. So the the apostles, the, the twelve in Paul, received their teachings directly from Jesus in the flesh. That's what First John 1, 1, 1, 2, 1, 3 says. Okay? They didn't go to heaven and have a vision and come back and tell about it. They were on earth in these bodies hearing real words from the real Jesus. So that's how they know what he said. That's how they know what he taught. 
And to the 11, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance everything that I told you. Right? Okay, but they heard it in the flesh. Now, this is the test of spirits. Now, verse John 4, 3, it says this, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Okay? Why, why is that? Why would spirits not confess Jesus? Because then Satan's house would be divided against itself. Because the one thing that plunders Satan's kingdom is the proclamation of the gospel. The only way souls escape from Satan's kingdom is through the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of the lost. Then they're transferred from the authority of darkness, Colossians 1.13, into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's, and so that's why I can even say this in an even shorter version in 1 Corinthians 12. It says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except for by the Holy Spirit. Again, it doesn't mean utter the words. You can see a false prophet. In fact, I see false prophet on TV with a big sign over his head, Jesus is Lord. He's a false teacher. But it means to confess the, the gospel accurately and forthrightly. That's what spirits won't do because they'd be really stupid to do that. Yes. It's Revelation 19.10. It says, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. And then getting back to Craig's question, when Paul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him, he had hostile witnesses that also saw. So it wasn't that he was the only one. He had a whole troop that was with him going to kill the Christians that also saw what it what, what Yeah, there were other witnesses. And, and interestingly, when Paul was called upon to testify in front of kings in Acts, he always told that story. He told the story several times in Acts, including in front of Agrippa. Because that was a pivotal story, how Jesus appeared to Paul. Okay, so every spirit that does not confess is not from God. Dear ones, I can tell you forthrightly and with all assurance of, of that, that this is the truth, that if you use this test of spirits, you will not be deceived. You will not. Because as soon as you go... A gospel preacher has the Holy Spirit. You can't shut a gospel preacher up. <laughs> All right, I, I hear that. <laughs> Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> now, I have a, the PowerPoint here from a, a message that I gave at one of our Faith at Risk uh, things. And this is called How to Discern a True Work of the Spirit. And let me just run through some of these verses. I just mentioned 1 Corinthians 12, 3, and the one in Revelation. Uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. is Revelation 19, 10. Now there's a genitive there, spirit of prophecy, and the testimony of Jesus. So we have these genitives. But the genitive, the way it needs to be interpreted here, is that Jesus is the object of, of the prophecy. In other words, they confess Christ. Okay? So a true prophet who speaks by the Holy Spirit will always confess Christ. That's the litmus test. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. In the broad sense that Jesus is Lord is not a shibboleth, a secret password, but it's the content of a message that would be proclaimed 
broadly and forthrightly and thoroughly because that's how Satan's kingdom is plundered. So then we had the Revelation 19, 10, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. As to this salvation of the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, be careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So the Old Testament prophets had the Holy Spirit, and they were prophesying about Christ. They were prophesying about Christ who would come. Okay? Let me just give you a few highlights here. False prophets, 2 Peter 2.1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. They deny the master. They don't preach Christ. They come up with a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. 2 Corinthians 11.4. This is the litmus test. 2 John 1.9. Anyone who goes too far, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching... He has both the Father and the Son. So a person's Christology is very, very important. The false cults all have false Christs, do they not? The Mormon Christ is not the biblical Christ. The Jehovah Witnesses Christ is not the biblical Christ. He's a created being. They are cults because they do not have Christ. They don't abide in the teaching of Christ. Now, John fifteen twenty six. When the Helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. Who does the Holy Spirit testify about? Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes on somebody, they'll testify about Jesus. Now, how long did they have to wait to test that theory? Not very long. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, right? And he fell upon these people. And Peter got up and preached, filled with the Spirit. Who did Peter preach about? Christ. He preached Christ. That's how you know the Holy Spirit came upon him. The tongues may or may not be from God, but preaching Christ is. All right? It's always from God. Now, what happens when a false prophet has the Holy Spirit come upon him? You're, you're, you're paying attention. You're paying attention. Was Balaam a false prophet? Absolutely. He was getting paid to curse Israel. How many of you know that's not a good idea? Right. So, but God wouldn't let him, so he kept blessing Israel when he was supposed to curse him. All right. But Balaam, look at what happens here. Balaam's a false prophet, and he's called that three times in the New Testament. Listen. And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And here's what he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall arise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab and destroy the sons of Tubal. So he preached the scepter, the Messiah, when the Holy Spirit came on him. Now I submit to you, that if the Holy Spirit comes on even a false prophet and they preach Christ, that you can count on the preaching of Christ as the litmus test 
for, for detecting the Holy Spirit at work. That's the one. Yes, Glenn. Um, back to the false prophet teaching Christ. His theology will change, too, because um, John Owen, in his book on apostasy, says he always points to the truth found in Jesus. So not only will he start preaching Christ, but he'll also change his theology to fit the truth that was found in his words. Yeah, if a false prophet repents, not only will they preach about the person of Christ, but the teaching of Christ, which is the content of the New Testament revelation. Now, the Holy Spirit comes upon people a number of places in the Bible. And there was a guy uh, in, in Luke 2, Simeon, and the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he preached about Christ. Yes, he saw the he Christ. Said that even in Caiaphas, when Caiaphas, who was plotting his death, said it's better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish, it says the Holy, that he said that by the Holy Spirit because it's true. That's also prophesying death of Christ is better than all perish because God had decided yeah. that. That's why he's prophesying. He unwittingly confessed Christ even though he wanted him dead. Even the Caiaphas, wicked guy. The Holy, Jesus testified about himself, Luke 4.18, Holy Spirit is upon me, anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. So he was quoting Isaiah 61.1 and saying that it was fulfilled in him. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, and a voice said, This is my beloved Son. Again, it's about Christ. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, who anoints the Messiah, is the unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Here's, here's a good one, Matthew 10, 18 to 20. We should apply this. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given to you in that hour what you to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Okay? Now, it says here you will be brought... Um, before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony or a witness to them. And I think the reason it says not to, in such of a circumstance, not to think ahead of time what you're going to say, is because we want to be delivered from the fear of man. A king is a very, being called before a king is a daunting thing. Kings usually have the power of life and death. They have the ability to confer great wealth or power, or status to somebody, and they have the ability to take it away. And so you're going before a king, you might think, oh man, I better say the right thing, right? I better tell that king something good. But Jesus said, don't think about it ahead of time. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. Now, what you're doing is you're going before the king to testify about Christ. Now, if you go through Acts and you look at whenever Paul was brought before kings... He testified about Christ. The Spirit of God came upon Paul, and he confessed Christ in front of kings, even if it meant they were going to kill him. All right? Now, this, that verse doesn't mean don't study for your sermon, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I show up. <laughs> There's no kings here. I show up. Well, I don't have a sermon, but the Lord said the Holy Spirit's going to come on me. In Luke 24, it says that you'll be witnesses of these things. 
what things? That Christ should suffer, rise again from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed. They went into Acts, and they were witnesses. Acts 1.8, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What will happen? You'll get slayed under the power, right? No, didn't say that. And when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, you shall be my witnesses. Barturion, where we get our word martyr. Ones who testify about Christ. Ones who, who speak about Christ. And both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other most parts of the world. Acts 4, 8 and 10. And then Peter, filled with the Spirit, Luke tells us. Filled with the Spirit. What happens? And he said, rulers and elders of the people, let it be known to all of you, and to all of the people in Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He testified, the Holy Spirit came upon him, testified about Christ. Let's a couple more, and we'll go back to our text. Acts 4, 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And then it says, And the great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and abundant grace was on them. This is not an isolated thing. This is not, the Bible isn't unclear about this. I used a kind of a double negative. The Bible is clear about this. There, that's better. It's very clear. And consistently throughout the entire New Testament, it says that when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person and ensuing that experience comes words, the words that come out are confessing the person and work of Christ. That's why it's a test of spirits. And if the church would apply this simple test, the false prophets would go out of business tomorrow. They would not be funded. They would not be on TV. They would not be filling auditoriums. They would not be teaching church growth theories. Because nobody would listen to them. Apply the test. Apply the test. You go to the meeting. I'm telling you, a true gospel preacher will always... I remember when I was a new Christian, and I was around some very enthusiastic gospel preachers in, in the early 70s. There was a lot of people being saved, and people were going into parks and preaching the gospel and confessing Christ. And frankly, it wasn't safe to ask those guys to speak at, at its events like at my wedding, <laughs> because they would preach the gospel every time. This little Pentecostal preacher got up at our wedding uh, uh, meal, the, the celebration when we got married, and he preached the gospel. People were twisting and turning. And he, was telling, he was telling them they were going to go to hell if they didn't repent. Like I said, they're not safe. And somehow, I don't know what happened. What happened? I don't know what happened. Because that was the, that very movement that I was in, that you couldn't keep the gospel out of it. Now you don't even hear it. Because I hear from people, it's just, it went away. No gospel. I think it's because we've got people that don't, really don't have the Holy Spirit doing the preaching. Patrick. If we do encounter someone who we believe is a false teacher and we do apply the test and we discuss it with the people who like them, they will just say, 
well, yeah, he is preaching the gospel. See, here, it, here he is, and here he is, and here he is. And they, they'll just, I mean, if somebody asked me that about you, I would defend that you are preaching the gospel all the time. Because I think it's obvious. Well, they can see for themselves. Right. But, I mean, everybody has that attitude about their, their favorite teachers. I, I, you know, I suppose there's sort of a delusion because you know that somebody believes something privately. You think that's good enough? That's a good, you know, for example, um, we're, you know, I wrote a book about the purpose-driven movement, and that movement has done more to drive the gospel out of more churches than any movement ever has been invented. And... When you talk to the followers of the movement, and I've gotten emails from high up people in that organization, and they'll, and they'll send me a link. So here's a link. Go over here and see, I'll show you that Rick Warren preached the gospel. And sure enough, he did. When you follow the link, he actually does. But remember the thing about being called before kings? Well, let me, let me give you an example. When I, I was out there, I was out there. And there were like 3,000 people and, uh, from all over the world for a big summit. Okay, and I, I got in in the last hour and a half. And Chris Roseborough was there for the whole thing. He heard everything. They had thousands of people, the most important event. These are pastors and leaders from all over the world being told what it means to be purpose-driven. And this guy that I know was there for the whole thing. And the gospel was never preached once, nor was gospel preaching even on the agenda. All right? And remember, Keith, you got into a debate with Richard Abanis about this. And uh, this Richard Abanis is an interesting character. Anyhow, Keith got on his blog and started going, one of some blog, and was going back and forth with him. And so what Keith finally did was he just kept going back to, you just had a summit. This was the most important event of the year. These were the top leaders from all over the world. Did Rick Warren preach the gospel there, or did he tell anybody else to? Well, Abano said, nobody did over here. Well, it can't be that important if your summit doesn't even include the gospel. It can't be important to you. That was the criteria. You confess what's important to you. Right. If you don't, if you might believe it privately, then, then that's not what your ministry is about. Then your ministry is not a gospel-centric Yeah. You, there are people who have the right gospel in their statement of faith and occasionally will even share it, but it's not important enough to them that it would ever come out at any important event or in front of a king or anything. Glenn. The first church I went to, which was in 79, we were there for four years. It was a Lutheran church. And I just started sensing something was really wrong with the church. And so I met with a pastor, and I didn't know much about the Bible because I was going to this Lutheran church. But anyway, I asked him, I, I go, <laughs> No, you Lutherans, it's not case for all Lutherans. No, don't, don't all, all On a scale mean. of 1 to 10, yeah, I know okay. what you mean. Um, and I asked him if he thought Jesus was the Christ and all that. And he says, well, the Bible points to that. Oh, he, he would not confess. Wrong answer. The Bible points to that. We did the moonwalk. <laughs> Wrong answer. Yeah, there's so many preachers out there that are doing so much damage, you know, like what Rick Warren is doing because they're creating confusion. Because once in a while you'll hear the gospel or they'll give assent to, to Christ, and maybe they won't give the full, you know, personal work of Christ. You know, they'll say Jesus is Lord, or, um, yeah. but they won't really preach the gospel. And that's, it's creating so, so much uh, confusion out there amongst uh, a lot of believers, and they're kind of languishing in these churches because they hear some of it, 
but then they're following all the false teachings. Yeah, okay, now here's the reason for that. Let me tell you another reason why confessing Christ is the litmus test, not visions of heaven, which is our topic here. Paul had a vision of heaven. He didn't, he didn't say, that. therefore, I'm an apostle. Listen to me. He said, I can't even tell you what happened. Here, here's the deal. The reason that a person who does believe the gospel, but most of the time, especially in public, when there's a mixed crowd or a lot of people don't preach it, is because if you preach the gospel, you alienate everybody who's not converted. All right? When that little preacher, in fact, that preacher at our wedding rehearsal, and in fact, the way he did it wasn't really the most tactful, but there were a lot of mad people at that wedding. Because he's told them they're going to hell. We went to a wedding. We didn't come here to hear we're going to hell. Okay? And, but it, that's what it does. It alienates. It alienates. It alienates. Or it converts. And it unifies. So the gospel preaching alienates the world and unifies the church. And the church becomes different than the world. And the world will not listen to us, as it says in, in John. Yes? I'll say it, another issue of why that isn't good is that the core issue of confessing the gospel is that I believe the core problem is sin. So if the core problem is sin, then I want to give you the real answer to the problem, which is the Jesus Christ come in the flesh, because that's what's dealt with sin. If instead the core problem is sin, and I tell you what happened in heaven, there's no salvation found there, because the reason for salvation, the reason we have salvation, happened here on the earth because God became man. And if that's not what we're talking about, we're not giving them the core issue and the core solution. Yep. You know, um, it's interesting. I was talking about the, this um, genre, visits of heaven to heaven and hell. In the research I did for the section of Scripture we're studying, Paul's visit to heaven, there are loads of literature, both in the Greco-Roman world and in the Jewish world, of that sort of stuff, of people having gone to heaven. And people haven't gone to hell. You can read it. It was just a constant thing that people wrote about. Visions of heaven and hell. So they had it already in, in before the first century. And it continues on to this day. Why? Because it sounds it sells, it sounds fascinating, it's a way to get followers. People want to know secrets. They want to know things that God hasn't chosen to reveal. Yes. Well, you know what's worse on top of everything that you said? I've noticed in some of those that confess that well, I should keep my religion to myself. I shouldn't talk about it. I shouldn't bring it out. And that's kind of unfortunate because when you gear your conversation and you're talking to somebody about the gospel, you're geared to, you know, for someone to speak and, you know, have them receive Christ. That's different. But when you're talking with a confessed believer, you're talking about growing in Christ. And when you, you know, come at from that point of view, then they say, well, no, I can't talk about my gospel. I, you know, as if, you know, throw the Great Commission and the Great Commandment right out the window. Yeah, you can't, it's not private. This, the gospel is not private. This uh, Martin, Dr. Martin, logo or the word commentary, wonders. One of the questions is, okay, back in verse four, who caught up into paradise but heard inexpressible words, which man is not permitted to speak. So, being how is they're inexpressible, and if you could speak them, you're not allowed to. It's illegal. Obviously, God gave Paul this experience. What, what? Uh, good could the experience be if Paul can't tell about it? What well, had to be for his own private good? 
It couldn't be anything else. And that's what Dr. Martin says here. He says, this experience, though not communicable as a result of its sacredness, must have had an untoned influence on Paul. If this event transferred around, or transpired around 44 A.D., then it was an incalculable boost to him as he embarked on his ministry. We may never know the many times Paul received inner strength or inward renewal, as he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 18, from his remembering this event. It had to have been something to give Paul inner strength and fortitude to go through everything that he went, because it wasn't for anybody's good but his. Yes? Well, you could have just, it could have just had that experience because he could use it in Corinthians to say it's not important. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, maybe he gave it to him just so he could rebuke the false prophets. Just so he prophets. could rebuke the false prophets and not use it just as, a, as, a, as like an ace card. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's a, that's a reasonable theory. Okay, then I wanted to check out Garland here. Here's what Dr. Garland says. Paul confides very little about what happened. We learn only that he was caught up into the third heaven, paradise, and how, and how he does not know. What he heard he cannot divulge. Paul's account of his journey to heaven differs from the tours of heaven and hell recorded by other apocalyptic and mystical writers of the age. He does not say how he was transported because he does not know. There's a document called the Apocalypse of Moses where it tells how he was transported. Remember last week I talked about that Merkaba mysticism that the Jews had? Merkaba was a chariot, and it was like a chariot that takes you to heaven. Okay, so Paul doesn't even know. He does not visit a series of heavens, as in some the mystery religions. He's not let it on secrets that he can then disclose to others and put in a book to be sealed for a later time. They had that. Nowadays, they don't seal it. They sell as many as they can. <laughs> the meaning of what he sees and hears is not interpreted by an angelic tour guide. There, in this book, there's an angelic tour guide. Yeah, an angel named Wisdom is a tour guide of heaven for this guy that went to heaven. This stuff was around 2,000 years ago. They had people going to heaven with angelic tour guides. This isn't new. My goodness. Paul didn't have any angelic tour guide. In the aftermath, in the aftermath what he gets instead is an angel from Satan. Angelos, that's the word. The messenger from Satan. The word messenger is angelos. So rather than an angelic tour guide, he gets an angel from Satan. <laughs> he gets an angel from Satan who plagues him with a thorn that leads him to a deeper understanding of his ministry. One of the writers cleverly said, Paul's thorn pinned him to the ground <laughs> so, so he doesn't leave. Yes. These experiences are still going on today all around us. I just I think we both got the same letter from a sister over in Singapore that uh, knew a pastor that had one of these experiences. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a, a lady on our, that comes to our site. Yeah, she was asking about a pastor in Singapore that had gone to heaven. What can I say? You've been forewarned. Paul's legitimate experience... We could do a greater to lesser argument and be kind of Jewish here. If Paul's legitimate experience that really was from God was something that was illegal to talk about, how much less ought people be talking about illegitimate experiences? Absolutely. 
I think we forgot how to blush. We forgot how to blush. We're willing to say things that, that are not to be said and, and to go places we're not supposed to go. Paradise, by the way, the Greek word, uh, is used in the Septuagint for the Garden of Eden. I, I had my daughter work on my computer because I was getting frustrated when I do my logout software. One of the things I like to do is search for Greek words in the Septuagint to see how the, a certain theological word in the New Testament was used when they translated the Old into Greek. But it was so slow. It was just grind, 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 because it's such a big document. It takes forever. So I wouldn't do it very often. So I had my daughter work on my computer. Now it's faster. Oh, boy, I'm having fun. <laughs> so I ran the word paradise and, 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 and to search it, the Septuagint. And I found out it's the word that's used for the Garden of Eden. And it's used in Revelation also, paradise. And so there's some inter- maybe some interesting connections there. Very, very interesting. And here's from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, and then we've got to be done here. The New Testament has other expressions as well as paradesos, paradesos for the state of the redeemed after death. Table fellowship with Abraham, uh, that's Luke 16:23. Being with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. With Christ, Philippians 1:23. The heavenly kingdom, 2 Timothy 4.18. The heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12.22. Abiding places in the Father's house, John 14.2. And so there's a lot of ways the Bible says heaven. And the Jehovah Witnesses know that most people don't know that. So they say, where does it say that you go to heaven when you die? Quick, where, get your Bible. Where does it say you go to heaven when you die? And you go, uh, uh, I, I don't know. And they say, well, because you don't. No, answer them. Here's how you answer them. Turn to John 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus ascended into heaven, and he says, that's where we're going. That's how you refute the JWs. John 14. There's a lot of different ways of saying heaven. Okay. Now, next week, we'll finish this up, and then uh, I want to talk about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And Ryan kind of ruined it for me because he preached on it already. Remember, he he had a list of all the different things people said that um, that the thorn in the flesh might be, including Paul's wife. No, he doesn't say he had a wife. (laughs) Okay, we'll see (laughs) you.